Welcome to episode 66 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I am Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. So today we're going to be talking about theatre, because if COVID put one creative industry truly through the ringer, it was, of course, theatre. And we are delighted to welcome as our guest today, Nick Allett, OBE. Nick's been on the inside track of theatre production for a very, very long time. He was basically the man who ran Cameron McIntosh's empire with Cameron for 20 years, and indeed he's still the vice chairman. When I was Minister of Culture in the early 2010s, I plucked Nick from obscurity (laughs) and made him a member of the Theatre's Trust. And it was clearly a good decision because he was reappointed for a second term in 2017, it says here. In uh, 2012, he was a member of the Cultural Olympiad Board and he was a trustee of the Foundation for Sports and the Arts for 20 years. He also has been a member of the Mayor of London's Strategy Group, the Creative Industries Sector Advisory Group, and he's also a business ambassador working for our great Prime Minister for the cultural sector. He is Mr Theatre, and one of life's great anecdotalists. I've got to interrupt you. You've halved my age, which is very sweet of you, because actually I ran Cameron's Empire for 40 years. Oh. Um, I was managing director for 20, but uh, but I was with him through the growth of the company since 1981, which with my dodgy you, maths means... You it's... really are old, Nick. <laughs> I know, but I'm old, but I'm a, I'm a Peter Pan character, as you know, Ed. I've been in a muddy field with you in Glastonbury, and frankly, my stamina is twice yours, so... In 1981, I was just starting secondary school. You weren't even wearing short trousers, probably. You were wearing short nappies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have the ancient Nick Allett with us. And Charles <laughs> trying to tell you that he's on the board of the English National Ballet, the Tricycle Theatre. <laughs> I was, I was. Those were all old ones. We know, we know all this stuff, Charlotte. We want to get... Well, let's get into it then. Let's get going. Come on. Anyway, good morning, Nick. It's lovely to see you. Morning, Charlotte. (laughs) Lovely to hear a sensible voice in the room. (laughs) Uh, We are, uh, having had Don Black on last week, we're now um, renaming this podcast The Only Sane Person on the Podcast. Yeah, well, I'm wondering which Um, one of those that is. Anyway, we can cover Cats, Song and Dance, Les Miserables, Phantom of the Opera, Follies, Miss Saigon, Martin Gare, Carousel, Mary Poppins. Hamilton. Hamilton. Hamilton the musical. Yeah, Ham- Hamilton, which I think nearly all of your listeners will know, is probably the, the single biggest cultural phenomenon of the last half decade. We were lucky enough to pick it up uh, after it had been running for about a year on Broadway, and it coincided with our acquisition of the Victoria Palace Theatre, which was a theatre that Cameron had long looked, looked longingly at. And uh, they decided it would be a perfect match. So we spent 64, 65 million pounds on restoring the theatre and put in Hamilton, which, as I say, is is probably arguably the most successful piece of live theatre ever. Early to say, because obviously shows like Phantom and Les Mis have run for over 30 years and Hamilton's a comparative newbie. But I would say dollar for pound, it, it, it is an extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, it's one of those extraordinary cross-generational pieces of work where people of literally all ages, classes, um, ethnicities, backgrounds come and get totally transported by it. What's uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda like? Is it like being in the presence of the new Stephen Sondheim? He is an enormously warm, friendly, a bullion, tiggerish character. 
He's really, really bouncy and energetic. I mean, the interesting thing about Lynn is he's obviously a proponent of this incredible new force in theatre, which is rap and hip hop. Everyone's going, oh my God, we've just discovered a rap and hip hop. It's sort of the holy grail because people have been looking to tie rap and hip hop into theatre for a very long time. This is the first show that's done it properly successfully. But the reason that Hamilton is successful is not just because it embraces a form of contemporary music that is traditionally associated with the young, but he also, his roots lie in traditional theatre. Uh, he was very much inspired by Andrew's stuff. He was very much inspired by uh, Les Miserables. When I went to see him in his dressing room in New York, when he was still playing Hamilton, he had two show relays in his dressing room. An actor has a show relay which broadcasts what's happening on stage into your dressing room so you don't miss a cue. Um, he had two, one of which broadcasts his show, Hamilton, which is in theatre, the other which was linked to the theatre next door, where we had Les Mis, so he could listen to Les Mis as well, just for pleasure. And he's a real theatre aficionado. I like to confound people by asking them, what is the single most, the single highest grossing piece of culture that you can think of? And most people go, oh, it's like I know Avatar. The what? Cat. I know. No, it's Les Miserables. No, it's not. What? The, the <laughs> single highest grossing piece of culture is not Les Miserables. It's not Avatar. It's not even Harry Potter. It is Phantom of the Opera. Um, oh. closely, closely followed, if not overtaken. And we, we both companies argue about it all the time by Lion King. It is incredible that 35, 36 years on, um, people are still uh, queuing up because they, they, they came out of an extraordinary period of theatre history, really, when the Brits discovered they could write musicals and not just write them, but produce them brilliantly um, in the 80s, that, that decade which produced all those huge, great big hits. Um, they all came out of that and they, and they last. And every now and again, a show will sort of drop in and join them, like Mamma Mia. Um, Hamilton, obviously, is a new one. Lion King joined. There's probably about 10 um, shows which I think will last the course. And by that, I mean, I don't know, century, certainly a couple of generations. But then along came COVID and you were telling me the other day how devastating that was. The first green shoots of recovery are beginning to be seen. But if I go back to March of 2020, no one had any idea quite how big a problem, how, how big a catastrophe this would be. And then bang, um, it came and it came so quickly. None of us had could, could, could none of us could have seen the scope of it. And, and when we shut down and we shut down in London, we shut down a week after they did on Broadway. In New York, they reacted quite quickly. In London, we were a little bit slower. In fact, we had a terrible week where the prime minister, bless him, recommended that people didn't go to public spaces. They didn't shut us down but they just suggested to the audience, probably best for you not to go and see this, which what that meant was we had no audience. We weren't mandated to shut down, so we, but we had to shut down ourselves, which meant that we couldn't claim on our insurance. Oh. So that, that single act mm. was dev devastating to start with. That was two years ago. Then, mm. of course, it was mandated that we shut down. Um, and we all imagined it would be you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, two months, but... The first thing we had to do was how do we look after our staff? How do we look after our people? The furlough scheme and the SICE scheme, the SEISS scheme for the self-employed, were yet to be applied. 
But given um, that you know that the vast majority of people who work in the cultural sector are self-employed, actors, musicians, designers, lighting designers, those sort of people. And sadly, an awful lot of them drop through the cracks in terms of being eligible for the SEISS schemes. They were either too young and hadn't got enough tax returns together. They were, they, or they sat just on the margin, which I seem to remember is about 50,000 pounds, which sounds like a lot of money, but if you're a musician and you've got a family and mortgage and, you know, it, it, it isn't. So a, a very, very large number of people found themselves a bit helpless. So we in the theatre, the, you know, the better off producers and theatre owners, um, were doing cash donations on top of what little the government was able to provide these people in order to tide us through. But we're in that sort of difficult position. What do you do? Do you let people, you have to, you close the show because you can't keep paying people full salary and there's no audience there. But if you close the show and you let everybody go and then we're told, oh yeah, you can start up again, there's no guarantee that your cast is going to be available again. So you've got to face that whole cost of recasting. So we had to sit down, sit down and try and educate government about what it meant to us if you shut us down for three, four, five months. The longer we were shut down, the more expensive it was to come back, the harder it was to come back. Two years went by, 18 months of which most of the theatres in this country were dark. But to give you an idea, in 19, September 1939, the national government, the wartime national government, two weeks before war broke out, shut the theatres and, and places of entertainment in this country. Within two weeks, they realised what a mistake they'd made. And that actually it was not only bad for the economy, but it was bad for morale. So they started to open them up again. Now that was the Second World War. We were dark for effectively 18 months. I mean, a few, a few hardy souls tried to put shows on again for Christmas, encouraged by the government who didn't see, as nobody did, Delta coming around the corner. But Delta shut us down again. Yeah. And then again, this last Christmas, when we set up again, Omicron came around the corner. You know, this is, we're being assassinated by the Greek alphabet bit by bit. But look, <laughs> here, here we are, we're in February. Um, a, a very recent UNESCO report um, reckons that 10 million creative jobs were lost across the globe in the last two years. Um, oh. We know that probably 25% of our cultural workforce lost their jobs and very many of whom won't come back. Probably a little bit too early to say, but there is a skill shortage coming out of the pandemic within the performing arts and to a degree in television and film, the like of which we've never seen. What is your favourite uh, musical? And don't give me that line at that, they're all your children, how can you possibly choose one? What is my favourite musical? <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm doing and I'll tell you my favourite musical. My favourite musical, my favourite musical of ours is Les Miserables. How can you say that? They're all your children. Yeah, I know, but, you know, everyone's got a, a favourite child and, and each of my four favourite children know, which, know when they are favourite. Probably my favourite musical of all time is My Fair Lady. We did that notoriously with Martine McCutcheon 20 years ago. God bless her. Um, Are you saying notoriously? I went to see that with Martine. I thought she was terrific, but she got panned. Well, you were very lucky. You, you, were one of the, you were one of the people that got to see Martine. I mean, poor thing. Her health was not all it might have been, with a net result that she probably only did about half the performances she should have done. I mean, doing eight shows a week 
in a musical is really hard. I mean, Jonathan Price found this out when we plucked Jonathan from obscurity as one of the leading classical actors of our generation and put him into uh, Miss Saigon. And I remember Jonathan saying to me, and he said, well, look, the truth is um, doing musicals is a doddle compared to the theatre. And the next week he was off and he discovered uh, what a nightmare it is actually, because if you are a, if, if you're a singer and your voice goes, it's a bit like a football, you can't force it to come back. You've just got to, you've got to rest it. And Jonathan learned very quickly that as a musical theatre performer, you don't speak to anyone before midday and you don't go out at night and you look after yourself, your voice is an instrument. And time and time and time again, we've seen people that come from other walks of life into the musical theatre and go, oh God, this is so nice. Everyone screams and cheers and claps. And then after the first night, you've got wonderful reviews and nominated for all these prizes. You then find you've got to do it eight times a week. And it, it's why, if you like, you know, you look at, you look at a, a role like Jean Valjean, Les Miserables. I mean, it's massive. It's a massive role with a lot of very high notes, a lot of very big songs. And doing that eight times a week, you know, you've got a cold and things like that. Which is why, interestingly, that the, the, the heroes, if you like, that have come out of COVID recently are the understudies. The, uh, the understudies who have really kept our business going in the last, I would say, two, three months, something like that. There's a wonderful YouTube clip. I don't know if you're um, a fan of Hugh Jackman. And there's a lovely clip of him on preview three, bringing this girl down from the, um, from the, uh, the back of the curtain call and introducing her and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to recognize the extraordinary talent these understudies and covers have. This young lady here is responsible for covering eight roles, eight different roles. And this morning, <gasps> this morning she came into work at 11 o'clock to find out she was playing the leading lady role that night, never having had a single rehearsal for the show. And so she started rehearsing at one o'clock and at seven o'clock she was measured for a costume and on she went. And that happened over and over and over again. But uh, you call him Hugh, so it implies that you know him. Yeah. Hugh, I mean, um, I, I follow Hugh Jackman on Instagram. That's how close I've got. Well, <laughs> what is Hugh Jackman if, like? Hugh Jackman is probably one of the most charming, delightful individuals. And, and you, you say you would say that. You, you, Hugh, we brought Hugh over from Australia in the mid-90s to do uh, Oklahoma at the National Theatre. And we brought him over to play Curly in Oklahoma. And I don't know if you ever saw that. You were probably too young, Ed, you were in short trousers still, but it was the most extraordinary performance of a really great production. He, he went on to become one of the world's biggest movie stars. But in the times that I've seen him since, and you know, he doesn't live in this country, so we don't see him that much. He's never anything but charming. The first night of Farinelli and the King in New York, um, I'm sitting there, Broadway opening, blah, 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 blah. And I see across the room, there's Hugh Jackman sitting sort of quietly on his own. And I went, oh, I've got to talk to him. And um, I go up and uh, grab him and go, um, Hugh, and he went, oh, hi, mate, how are you? You know, Nick, nice to see you. It's been a while. I said, yeah, it has. And at that moment, two, how shall I describe them? Tall, thin young gentlemen who like show tunes um, sitting behind us, <laughs> tapped us, tapped us on the shoulder and said, uh, excuse me, would you mind? And handed us, um, the, uh, the, their iPhone camera. And he went, oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, I'll be ready. You know, started a post for his selfie. And the, he went, no, would you mind taking a picture of us? 
and handed Hugh Jackman the camera to take a picture of these two guys sitting at their first Broadway first night. <laughs> so um, anyway, look, we were having a serious conversation about how theatre emerges from this dark, dark, dark ravine. Um, and I think, look, it's, it, 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 it is, it's coming out there. There's a lot of existential questions that have got to be asked. You know, who are we? Why are we? Who are we for? Blah, blah, all those things. But we, there was an acknowledgement, if you like, that there, are, that there are imbalances and injustices within our sector that needs to be addressed. And COVID shone a spotlight on those. And it's something that we're addressing now. And with the huge skill shortage we have at the moment, it's a very good opportunity to do that. You know, we, we, we spent most of lockdown challenging government evidence that we were as lethal as they said we were. You know, there was a wonderful, wonderful instance where we were, to, where we were told that brass bands, if you wanted to kill your granny, take her to a brass band concert, because that was probably the most toxic thing you could do. And we had to get one of the world's best uh, trombone players to demonstrate with his instrument that you could not blow a ping pong ball across a bloody table. You know, what, what what comes out of the end of that is not air full of spit, but, to go, but vibration. And eventually, I'm pleased to say that government government scientists realised that actually sitting in rows that and theatres... That, that, good, could actually, that could actually, in better hands, be turned into a good anecdote. For a, for a, trombone player, a trombone player turning up to the minister's office and trying to blow a ping-pong table. No, it wasn't quite like that, because no one was allowed to see anyone. He had to film anyway, himself, back, he had his wife filming the, it. Back to the anecdote front. Um, Jonathan Price, Miss Saigon, you made his career. Nobody had ever heard of him before. I was interested in what you said about him uh, thinking that music theatre was a doddle compared to theatre. I mean, do you think musical theatre is taken seriously as an art form by the bien pensant. <laughs> uh, I think, I, I don't think it was. I think it's become so. I mean, look, it, 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 it is so, it looms so large in all our lives that it's hard to ignore now. And if you think Andrew Lloyd Webber and the rise of the talent show on television, because those casting shows, if you like, shone a spotlight on quite how hard it is to make a living within the theatre, because not, not just because you've got to be good, but you've got to be good and strong and resilient. I mean, it's really interesting. Look, look at the wonderful Jessie Buckley at the moment. Jessie yeah. Buckley. We just uh, saw her in Cabaret. We just yeah. saw her in Cabaret, Nick. You saw her in Cabaret. God, you, and we you loved it. Yeah, we did. She, <laughs> she was um, a, a, a bar singer in Southern Ireland who auditioned for the role of Nancy in I'd Do Anything, the BBC programme. And I remember the very, very early auditions when there were like hundreds of girls, literally hundreds of girls. Andrew was the head judge, Lloyd Webber, and he said to me, I know the girl who's going to win. I said, don't be silly, there's like a thousand girls here. He said, no, I've seen her, she's extraordinary. Her name's Jessie Buckley. So we then followed it through and, you know, the hundreds, well, look, it gets better. Look, the hundreds came, the hundreds came down to 10 and then 10 became down. And then it got, the 10 got down to two. And it was Jesse Buckley and Jodie Prenger. And the public voted with Jodie Prenger. Jesse Buckley was devastated, but she went off. And with some help from ourselves and others, she went to RADA and she retrained. And she, you know, 10 years later, she's an Oscar nominee with a good chance of winning. There's no kind of Leo DiCaprio of musical theatre, though, is there? There's no kind of breakout, you know, household, well, it was, global you, household used, name. Used to be, used to be John Barrowman. Um, I was then, thinking Elaine uh, Page. Elaine Page was probably the biggest name in musical theatre for many years. 
Now, listen, if, we, if you're going to do six degrees of separation between Leonardo DiCaprio and Elaine Page, you might struggle, <laughs> I think. Elaine Page. Elaine Page is a force of nature. She's incredible. And I, I remember her sitting. I remember her on day two. No, day one of when she went into Cats. Because if you remember, poor Judy Dench, um, the goddess uh, Judy Dench, ruptured her Achilles tendon in rehearsals for Cats. And the role that she was. I didn't, I, the idea of Judy Dench in Cats has slightly blown you my mind. You must know that story. No. Oh my God. No, Judy Judy was playing the role of Grisabella, and the famous story she was rehearsing, and they're all rehearsing in some cold, drafty rehearsal studio in South London. And suddenly there was something that sounded like a pistol shot. Literally, people spun around, and there was a <gasps> scream. And Judy's, Judy's Achilles had rolled up the back of her leg. Just snap oh, my God! I, I, ah, I, I, there you I, go. I, I, oh, so, oh. so um, she was, you know, she was went to hospital and sent up and strapped up and put in plaster, and the role was kept open for her. And on the first day of my employment on that show, because I was theatre manager, I got a call from the stage door going, "Mr. Allen, uh, Judy's arrived for her re rehearsal. Could you come and help her?" I thought, "Oh my God! You know, this is so exciting." my first day working in London theatre and I'm going to go and rescue Judy Dench. So I went and collected her and the set to Cats, a whole series of ramps going up it. And she said, will you help me up the ramp? And I said, yes, of course. So she took my arm and we walked up very slowly with a crutch and we got halfway up and she said, okay, I think I'm okay now. Let me go. And I did. And she fell off. She fell off the ramp, crashed sideways. And I thought, oh my God. Day one, and I've killed a national treasure. This is going to be the shortest job I've ever had in my life. But fortunately, she didn't blame me. But she did sit in a heap and say, look, I'm very sad to say I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. And, you know, we were four days off um, our first performance. So they got Elaine Page, who hadn't really done anything since Evita. And um, I remember uh, her, this figure walking in. She had a reputation, Elaine. She was the reputation of being a bit of a diva then. And sitting next to her, and I said, um, hi, how do you do? Um, I'm Nick Hallett. And she said, hello, I'm Elaine Page. And I said, um, are you okay? And she looked at me and she said, no, I'm absolutely bloody terrified. <laughs> do you want me to tell the Bar you want me to tell the story of Barbara Streisand coming to the theatre? That's, that's, yes, because that, we that's did. A good Don anecdote. Black talked about Barbara Streisand on our podcast last okay. week. He said it was like meeting his sister. Okay. So I am the theatre manager of the New London Theatre, and my office because it was a slightly odd theatre, was was I shared with like our royal retiring room. So we looked after guests there. So the crowned heads of Europe um, came through my office. Every single star I'd ever wanted to meet, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, dancing around my office with her shoes off. Um, Faye Ray, do you remember her, the girl from um, King oh, yes. Kong? Charles and Diana, Princess Diana doing the splits in my office. Oh my God. Uh, that, was, um, that, was, that was pretty extraordinary. But anyway, talking of the Queen of Queens, I get a call from Andrew's office going, Nick, Barbara Streisand's coming to the show tonight. She may be recording memory, which of course is a, was a big, big deal. She doesn't want anyone to know she's coming and she doesn't want anyone to see her come into the theatre. Anyway, I went to collect her. She was wearing see-through harem pants, a gold glittery top and a gold turban that must have been, I don't know, foot and a half high, something like that. <laughs> She looked like the Edison Lighthouse gliding into the theatre. And she came, she came in and I ushered her to her seats in the centre of the front row to find that two wallies had gone and sat in her seat because it's all the empty seats. So I had to literally force these people out. 
Put Barbara into a seat, said Mr. Eisen, I'll come and collect you at the interval. Went back, we sort of relaxed, went, Andrew was pacing up and down my office, very nervous, very nervous. And um, we, we'd arranged for canapes as you do and champagne and everything. Came to the interval. And as I was approaching my office with La Streisand under my arm, I heard a very louder than necessary pop going. I thought, oh, he's opened the champagne. And I walked in and Andrew had opened the bottle of champagne and it had sort of exploded. And it had all the little canapes were floating like little boats on this tray. And most of the champagne had gone over Andrew's head. So his hair was sort of plastered to his forehead. And he was holding out this tray of floating <laughs> canapes saying, uh, Mr. Eisen, would you? And she went, no, thank you. Do you have any milk? Do you have any milk? No, do we have any milk? So I had to rush out into the bar while Andrew was basically mopping himself up and and find milk, a glass of milk for La Streisand. All I could do is I find 20 of those, you know, those little UHT yes, containers. Yes, yes. So I was ripping the top off these things, trying to get enough to get a glass of milk. And of course, UHT milk tastes disgusting. So so I, I, I brought it back, proffered her this with shaking hand, this glass of milk, whereupon she said she wanted to go home. It's half time. She hasn't even heard memory. Andrew, I look at the look of horror. And what's even worse is I've sent her car home. So, um, and of course, the days before mobile phones. So I run out into Drury Lane, pouring rain, not a car to be seen, run to the bottom of Drury Lane. There's a pub and there's a taxi running outside. And I run into the pub and go, whose taxi is that? The guy said, mine. I said, I've got a fare for you. No, mate, I'm off duty. He said, it's Barbara Streisand. I'm coming, he said. <laughs> so we, we jump into the taxi, run up. I said to Andrew, we've got a taxi outside. It's all fine, don't worry. And Andrew, of course, is panicking that people are going to be seeing her coming out of the theatre. Well, she's still and, got um, the turban on at this point, Nick, or had she had to still take got it off? The, still got the turban <laughs> on, so unmistakably Barbara Streisand. But more importantly, leaving halfway through the show, which is not something that yeah, you do. Yeah, that's bad. So Andrew and I led her downstairs, and as I put her into the taxi, safe in the knowledge that the audience had gone back in and it would be completely anonymous, Richard Young, ubiquitous Richard oh! Young, oh, yes! <laughs> jumped in the other side of the taxi no! and started snapping away. So as no. I was helping, as I was helping Barbara into the taxi, Richard was <laughs> on the other side hauling. Sorry, Andrew was on the other side hauling Richard out by his legs, <laughs> literally pulling him out by his legs. While Barbara's going, drive, drive, drive. Where was she going? Claridge's, or I couldn't remember what it was. So Andrew, that was saying to me, "That's awful. Look, look, everyone, everyone's going to see her leaving. Everyone's going to, they're going to think she hated the show. They're going to think she hated it. It's disaster. It's the end of the world. It's acid disaster." I said, "No one saw her leave." I'll talk to Richard. I'm sure we won't run those pictures in that context. It'll be fine. At that moment, I promise you this is true, two American tourists walked past the front of the theatre and went, wasn't that Barbara Streisand living the theatre? She must have hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, promise you, not a word about Andrew, real round in horror. Anyway, look, the, the point of the story is Barbara went on to record Memory. Um, oh, and it was a massive, massive, multi, multi-platinum selling song. Um, but it was it was one of the most stressful nights in the theatre. Refreshing people in the theatre is very difficult. When wet and behind the ears, when I knew nothing, preview number four of Cats, we had Princess Margaret um, come to the show. So I laid out champagne and white wine and red wine. And she was brought into my office at the interval. Ma'am, do you like a glass of red wine? Do you like a glass of white wine? Do you have any whiskey? Which, of course, is all that Princess Margaret drank. And the answer was, no, I didn't. So again, rather like oh, the no, not of the milk. Again. Yeah, I launched, <laughs> well, this was before. I launched off 
And of course, the bars are packed and I can't get near because everyone's sort of pushing. So again, using my initiative, I rushed to the drinks cupboard where everything was kept in the back of the theatre to find it locked. So I had to take a fire axe off the wall. Oh, no. And, yeah, no. and smash my way in to get, with shaking hands, a glass of, a glass of, a tumbler of whiskey for, um, for Her Royal Highness. We can't let you get away with mentioning casually that Princess Diana did splits in your office without elaborating. You did. She came, they'd been married for a few months. What show was this, Nick? This was Cats. Cats, really okay. And Charles was, was obviously um, doing brilliantly and said to me, you know, I think it's quite amazing the way they do. I'm not going to do his, his accent because everyone does it very badly. It's quite amazing the way they do those things. You know, how can they possibly do that? How can they possibly do that? Whereupon Diana said, very easy, darling, and dropped into the most perfect splits you've ever seen. <laughs> um, now, I'm a gentleman, so uh, the protocol dictates that I won't describe what a sight that was, but I can tell you it was quite extraordinary. Can I just um, ask if she had a skirt, she should have a skirt on, so she had to hit it wearing, up. She was wearing a skirt. An interesting, interesting um, fact to do with royal protocol that I didn't know, and I don't know whether it's true or not, whether these guys were just pulling my leg, but we, we got quite used to looking after members of the um, obviously royal protection party. And I would offer them a drink and I say, no, I can't, I'm afraid I'm on duty. But then one of them said, he said, yes, have you got a fridge here? So I said, yes. So he took his gun out of his pocket and put it in the fridge and said, okay, now I'm allowed to have a drink. No. Did you know oh, that? I, I did not know that. I very no, there you go. So, so presumably they can't, they can't drink while they're weaponized. But why in the fridge? <laughs> anyway, for, yeah, exactly. Anyway, for, for enough of those celebrity anecdotes, you'll have to buy my Little book. did they know that Nick, Nick Allett was an experienced fire axe opener of fridges. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen, so so what's happening, you ask, I hear you ask, Ed. So the theatre is coming out of the darkness and one of the many things we're trying to do, apart from uh, build up audience confidence, is build up investment confidence as well. I'm involved in creating a fund uh, for the first time with a, with a bunch of um, city people and producers called the Theatre Returns Fund. And the idea, to, you see what it did, a little play on returns, theatre's coming back, yeah, it, uh, return well, on your investment. It. I get it now. You get it. Theatre returns yeah, the, fine. Theatre's so, back. So um, we get an opportunity, if you like, for uh, hitherto unculturally involved financial institutions, high net worth individuals, family offices, to support the return of theatre, hopefully have a bit of fun in doing so, and at the same time get pretty good returns. It's a... Uh, it's a pretty good investment. I won't say sound. I've got to be careful what I say for regulatory purposes, but it's a good investment. And as I say, you're supporting a massive British cultural institution coming back, supporting British soft power. You're having a bit of fun. You come to first night, you meet investors. Um, sorry, meet investors. You meet the cast. I think that's a great <laughs> and positive note to end on. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Nick, <laughs> Nick thank you so much. It's yeah, a great pleasure. You. It's very lovely to talk to you both. And Ed, it's time I saw you in the flesh, as they say. Long overdue. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands monthly. 
we love your feedback so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk do tune in next week because for the first time on the podcast we're going to be talking about jazz with the fabulous ray gelato with his band the giants ray's been a mainstay at ronnie scott's and done an astonishing 16 christmas seasons there as well as performing at the umbria jazz festival 10 times and the montreal jazz festival and new york's blue note we're going to be chatting to him about his life in music what it was like to perform for the queen and at paul mccartney's wedding and hear about the album he and the giants made in lockdown and he's got some upcoming live gigs in london so do listen next week as it's going to be fun goodbye see you next week